Welcome to the official Slate Star Codex podcast. Every other Saturday, we go into the archives and bring you a recording of one of the classic posts. If you're interested in supporting that, please consider donating to our Patreon. The address for that is patreon.com slash podcast. This week, it's Beware Isolated Demands for Rigor from August 14th. 2014. Part 1. From Identity, Personal Identity, and Self by John Perry. Quote, There is something about practical things that knocks us off our philosophical high horses. Perhaps Heraclites really thought he couldn't step in the same river twice. Perhaps even received tenure for that contribution to philosophy. But suppose some other ancient had claimed to have as much right as Heraclites did to an ox Heraclites had bought, on the grounds that since the animal had changed, it wasn't the same one he had bought, and so was up for grabs. Heraclites would have quickly come up with some ersatz, watered-down version of identity of practical value for dealing with property rights, oxen, liars, vineyards, and the like, and then he might have wondered if that watered-down, vulgar sense of identity might be a considerably more valuable concept than a pure and philosophical sort of identity that nothing has. End quote. Okay, but I can think of something worse than that. Imagine Heraclites as a cattle wrestler in the Old West. Every time a rancher catches him at his nefarious business, he patiently explains to them that identity doesn't exist, and therefore the same argument against private property as made above. Flummoxed, they're unable to think of a response before he rides off into the sunset. But then, when Heraclites himself needs the concept of stable personal identity for something, maybe he wants to deposit his ill-gotten gains in the bank with a certainty that the banker will give it back to him, the next time he shows up to withdraw it, or maybe he wants to bribe the the sheriff to ignore his activities for the next while, all of a sudden Heraclites is willing to tolerate the watered-down, vulgar sense of identity like everyone else. Actually, I can think of something even worse than that, which is a TV western based on this premise where a roving band of pre-Socratic desperados terrorizes Texas. The climax Climax is no doubt when the hero strides onto Main Street, revolver in hand, saying, There's a new sheriff in town. And Parmenides gruffly responds, No, I'm pretty sure that's impossible. At its best, philosophy is a revolutionary pursuit that dissolves our common sense intuitions and exposes the possibility of much deeper structures behind them. One can respond by becoming a saint or a madman or by becoming a pragmatist who is willing to continue to participate in human society while also understanding its theoretical limitations. Both are respectable career paths. The problem is when someone chooses to apply philosophical rigor selectively. Heraclites could drown in his deeper understanding of personal identity and become a holy madman, skewing material things and taking no care for the morrow, because he does not believe there is any consistent self to experience it, or he could engage with it from afar, 
becoming a wise scholar who participating in earthly affairs while drawing equanimity from the realization that there is a sense in which all his accomplishments will be impermanent. But if he only applies his new theory when he wants other people's cows, then we have a problem. Philosophical rigor, usually a virtue, has become debased to an isolated demand for rigor in cases where it benefits Heraclites. A fair use of philosophical rigor would prevent both Heraclites and his victims from owning property and thus either collapse under its own impracticality or usher in a revolutionary new form of economic thinking. An isolated demand for philosophical rigor, applied by Heraclites to other people but never the other way around, would merely give Heraclites an unfair advantage in the existing system. Part 2. A while ago, I wrote a post called Military Strikes Are an Extremely Cheap Way to Help Foreigners, which was a response to a Matt Iglesias post called The Opposite. Iglesias was opposed to humanitarian military intervention. Think the airstrikes on ISIS going on right now, justified under the cause of preventing a genocide. And his argument was that this was extremely cost-ineffective compared to just giving the money to give Wells top-rated charity. At the time he was writing, malaria prevention. I argued he was wrong about his numbers, but I also argued he was unfairly making an isolated demand for philosophical rigor. Once you learn about utilitarianism and effective charity, you can become the holy madman, donating every cent you have beyond what is strictly necessary to survive and hold down a job to whatever the top-rated charity is. Or you can become the worldly scholar continuing to fritter away your money on things like hot water and food other than gruel, but appreciating the effective utilitarian perspective and trying to make a few particularly important concessions to it. Or you can use it to steal other people's cows. This is what I accuse Matt Iglesias of doing. Presumably there are lots of government programs Iglesias supports. I suggested PBS and he would never dream of demanding that we defund them in the hopes of donating the money to malaria prevention. But if, for political reasons, he doesn't support airstrikes, suddenly that plan has to justify itself according to the rigorous criteria that no government program that exists could possibly pass. Government spending seems to be a particularly fertile case for this problem. I remember hearing some conservatives complain Sex education in public schools is an outrage because my tax dollars are going to support something I believe is morally wrong. This is, I guess, a demand for ethical rigor, that no one should ever be forced to pay for something they don't like. Apply it consistently and conservatives shouldn't have to pay for sex ed, liberals shouldn't have to pay for wars, and libertarians shouldn't have to pay for anything except maybe a $9.99 tax bill yearly to support the police and a minimal court system. Applied consistently, you become the holy madman demanding either total anarchy or some kind of weird system of tax earmarks, which would actually be pretty fun to think about. 
or the worldly scholar with a strong appreciation for libertarian ideas who needs a really strong foundational justification for spending government money on things that a lot of people oppose. Applied inconsistently, you're just stealing cows again, coming up with a clever argument against the programs you don't like while defending the ones you do. Part 3. But this is the sort of uncouth behavior we expect of political partisans. What about science? Suppose there are scientists on both sides of a controversial issue. For example, economists studying the minimum wage. One team that supports the minimum wage comes up with a pretty good study showing with P less than 0.05 that minimum wages help the economy in some relevant way. The science czar, of course we have a science czar, we're not monsters, notes that P less than 0.05 is really a shoddy criterion They can prove anything, and they should come back when they have P less than 0.01. I have a huge amount of sympathy with the science czar on this one, by the way. So, the team of economists spends another five years doing another study and finds with P less than 0.01 that the minimum wage helps the economy in some important way. The science czar notes that their study was correlational only, and that correlational studies suck. We really can't show that minimum wages are any good without a randomized controlled trial. Luckily, the government of every country in the world are totally game for splitting their countries in half and instituting different economic regimes in each part for 10 years. So after a decade, it comes out that in the randomized control trial, the minimum wage helped the economy with P less than 0.01. The science czar worries about publication bias. What if there were a lot of other teams who got all the countries in the world to split in half and institute different wage policies in each of the two territories for one decade, but they weren't published because their results weren't interesting enough? Everything the science czar has said so far makes perfect sense, and he is to be commended for his rigor and commitment to the job. Science is really hard, and even tiny methodological mistakes can, in principle, invalidate an entire field. But now, suppose that a team shows in a sample of six restaurants in Podunk, Ohio, there was a non-significant trend towards the minimum wage making things a little worse. And the science czar says, Awesome! That solves the debate. Minimum wage is bad. Let's move on to investigating nominal GDP targeting. Now it looks like the science czar is just a jerk who's really against the minimum wage. All his knowledge of the standards of scientific rigor are going not towards bettering science, but towards worsening science. He's not trying to create a revolutionary new scientific regime. He's taking pot shots. I see this a lot in medicine. Someone jumps on a new study showing that selenium or chromium or plutonium or whatever cures cancer. It is brought up that no, really, the medical community has investigated this sort of thing before and it has always been found that it doesn't. Well, maybe the medical community wasn't investigating it the right way. Maybe the investigators were biased. Maybe they didn't randomize right. Maybe they used a population unusually susceptible to cancer getting 
90% of medical studies are wrong, and those 20 experiments showing a lack of effect could be total bunk. Yes, maybe these things happened in each of the 20 studies that disagree with you. Or maybe they happened in the one contrarian study you are getting so excited about. Part 4. The unholy combination of isolated demands for philosophical rigor and isolated demands for scientific rigor are isolated demands for mathematical, statistical, conceptual rigor, i.e., the sort of thing this blog has been talking about all week. I have already been made fun of for how many different things I am metaphorically comparing IQ to. Speed, blood pressure, comas. So I guess it can't hurt to add another example I only thought of today. How about crime? It's usually measured by crime rate, a made-up statistic that combines subfactors like arson, maybe higher when fire insurance pays out better, property damage, maybe higher during periods of ethnic tension and frequent riots, and theft, maybe higher when income inequality is worse. There is assumed to be a general factor of crime, presumably caused by things like poor policing, dark alleys, broken families, etc. But I would be extremely surprised if anyone had ever proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that the factor analysis works out here. When Cosma Chalzi says he's not sure about the factor analysis in IQ, I have no quarrel with him. Because Cosma Chalazi's response to everything in the world is to glare at it for not being sufficiently statistically rigorous. But when other people are totally happy to talk about speed and blood pressure and comas and the crime rate, and then suddenly switch to a position that we can't talk about IQ at all unless we have a perfect factor analytical proof of its obeying certain statistical rules, and then I worry they're just out to steal cows. Likewise, if someone were to just never acknowledge any sorts of groups of objects, except those that could be statistically proven to fall out into absolutely separate clusters, in which variance within each cluster is less than variance between clusters, well, at least they would be fun to talk to at dinner parties. But when people never even begin to question the idea of different cultures, but make exacting demands of anyone before they can talk about different races, even though the two ideas are statistically isomorphic, then I think they're just out to steal cows. So this is another technique for avoiding eulering. Is your interlocutor equally willing to apply their complex mathematical argument to everything else? I think if I hadn't known anything about Bayesian probability, I would have examined the McGrew's Bayesian argument for the Gospels by seeing if it applied equally well to Mormonism, the control group for Christianity. Part 5. The old man stamps his boot in the red dirt, kicking up a tiny cloud of dust. There's a new sheriff in town, he told them. No, I'm pretty sure that's impossible, says Parmenides. There's no such thing as change, only the appearance thereof. Well then, says the old man, I reckon you won't mind the false illusion of your surroundings appearing to change into a jail cell. 
and he took out his six-shooter and held it steady. Hold on, said Thallus. We don't want any trouble here. All is water. So all we did was steal a little bit of water from people. We can give you some water back and everything will be even, right? He gestured to a watering trough where horses on the side of the street, which was full of the stuff. Just so long as you don't mind being sprayed with some very hard water from my squirt gun, the old man answered, and the six-shooter was pointed at the Malaysian now. Ha! said Zeno of Alia. You don't scare us in order to hit Thallus. Your bullet would have to get halfway to him, then halfway of the remaining distance, and so on. But that would require an infinite number of steps. Therefore, it is impossible. Sorry, said the old man. I couldn't hear you because it's logically impossible for the sound waves encoding your speech to reach my ears. We're not even the same people as the guys who stole those cattle, said Heraclides. Personal identity is an illusion. Then you won't mind coming to the courthouse with me, replied the old man, to help the judge imprison some other people who look just like you. The last of them, the tall one, said nothing. He just raised his revolver in a fluid motion and shot at the old man. The old man saw it coming and jumped out of the way. The air was briefly full of bullets. Bang! Thales went down. Bang, bang. Heraclites. Bang, bang. Parmenides and Zeno. Bang, bang, bang. The old man was hit in the arms, but still standing. Bang, 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 bang. He was just the old man and the tall one now. The tall one picked up his gun and fired. Nothing happened. Out of bullets. The old man smiled wryly, his six-shooter still in his hand. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Well, you've got to ask yourself a question. Do you feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? The tall one didn't budge. Man is the measure of all things, said Protagoras. If I believe you fired six shots, then by my personal epistemic standard, you fired six shots. The old man didn't say anything. You see, the sophist continued, out of all of them, I alone was truly consistent. They all came up with clever theories, then abandoned them whenever it conflicted with their self-interest. I was more honest. I just said at the beginning that my self-interest determined truth, and so never suffered any temptation to depart from my position. The old man took off the bandana covering his face. Man may be the measure of all things, but I've taken your measure, Protagoras, and found it wanting. Socrates? The sophist gasped. The only truly consistent people are the dead, Protagoras, he said, and squeezed the trigger. This audio version of Slate Star Codex is provided with the permission of Scott Alexander. I am not Scott. I'm Jeremiah. And you can find me at wearenotsaved.com, where I also have a podcast. For anyone wishing to reference this content, please do so by linking to the original post. If you think having an audio version of Slate Star Codex is valuable, and you have nothing better to do with your money, consider donating at patreon.com slash sscpodcast, or leave us a review somewhere. 
until next time.